CBS presents this program in color. Last week, as you recall, we left the Jupiter 2 and our space pioneers contentedly streaking through the heavens, unaware that a giant space mass was even now hurtling out of the blackness directly towards them. We must be nearly a million miles out in space, Dad. Closer to two million, son. Wow, we must be traveling at close to speed of light. Just about, Will. What a pity we have no idea where we are traveling to. We'll know once we spot a familiar star and get a fix on it. The trouble is, there are billions of stars out there, and they all look familiar. He's right. I can't tell one from the other. Of course not, silly. You don't know anything about astronomy. But Dad does, and so does Don. That is devoutly to be wished. Howsomever, I think I shall do a little stargazing on my own. You mean you're going to take another nap? <laughs> Spare me the barbs, Major. Just remember they laughed at Copernicus, too. You, sir, come with me. And you can come with me, my dears. I want to stay here with Dad and Don. They may need my help. Not as much as I do. Holy cow. Now, let's see. Earth should be back here. John, maneuver around it. We can't get around it. We've had it. Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 31st broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled Wild Adventure. And you know, Kurt, that last episode left me with a burning desire to find out how the Robinsons were going to get out of the danger that Smith's got them into yet again. But if history's any guide, I'd say things are only going to get hotter. Well, if you're waiting for Smith to somehow mess things up, you're not going to be disappointed in this episode. Of that, I will assure you. (laughs) Sounds just about right. Well, a few production notes before we begin with a story. The writing team of 38-year-old William Reed Woodfield and 41-year-old Alan Balter's last effort for Lost in Space was the dark first-season episode, Attack of the Monster Plants. This story, in keeping with the colorful new tone being established for season two, was certainly more lighthearted and fantastical than Monster Plants, but it did have a few moments of creepiness and even some thrills. The pair spent most of 1965 and 66 churning out scripts for Irwin Allen's other hit show, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Woodfield collaborated with Balter on seven episodes of Voyage and penned another seven solo. After finishing their required second draft for Wild Adventure, they wrote one additional episode of Time Tunnel 
before clocking out of their contract with Allen and moving on to a long and successful career writing for a multitude of high-profile series like Mission Impossible and Columbo. Woodfield and Balter may have also clocked out early on this episode, because there were numerous logic flaws and out-of-character bits of dialogue that Irwin Allen picked up on and handed off to script editor Tony Wilson to address. Perhaps their sloppiness was payback for the fact that Irwin had a nasty habit of ordering his secretary, Lily Glensky, the future Mrs. William Woodfield, to change the titles of the writing duo's scripts. Remember, Attack of the Monster Plants was originally titled The Cyclamen, and Wild Adventure was supposed to be called The Space Lorelei. Oh, that must have really bugged the writers, the way Irwin would always change their titles. Stories are like your children, you know? It's bad enough when people try to change the way they act, but when they insist on renaming them, that can really get irksome. <laughs> In fact, there's a great story about uh, Woodfield and Balter, how they got the last laugh on Irwin playing a practical joke on him. Mm. And he didn't like it one bit. <laughs> but the, the story is revealed in the Eisner and Megan's Lost in Space Forever book. Wilfield related that Irwin used to come to our office every now and then to look in and check up on us. So one day I said to Alan, do you want to drive Irwin crazy? And Alan says, sure. <laughs> <laughs> we had these two desks which were facing each other. We had a typewriter there with a sofa in the office. So I took the tape recorder and told Alan to start typing. So he starts typing into this tape recorder. Then I told him to lie down on the sofa and pretend he was asleep. Then I put the tape recorder in the drawer and switch it on and put my head down on the desk and I pretend I'm asleep. Finally, Erwin comes in and sees asleep <laughs> and he starts screaming, what the hell are you two guys doing? I say, Erwin, we're working he says working what, what what the hell are you talking about so i say erwin don't you hear the typewriter and he says yeah yeah i hear it so what well i said i have it on autopilot erwin <laughs> looks at the typewriter he looks at alan he looks at me and then he says oh okay then he turned around and he went back to his office <laughs> we couldn't stop <laughs> laughing because erwin allen had no sense of humor at all oh <laughs> <laughs> uh. <sighs> Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> it sounds like they really did have a lot of fun with that. Uh, my favorite part is just how they were, like, totally dead set on needling him. You know, it's like you didn't even need to ask the other guy, sure. <laughs> I like the image of Irwin lurking through the halls of the offices to check on people. Are you working in there? <laughs> I'm paying you. Where's that sound of that typewriter? I paid you to type, not think. <laughs> uh well, it sounds like Woodfield and Balter were taking a page right out of Don Richardson's book. We've heard how he liked to pull Irwin's chain as well. The 48-year-old director is back now for his first episode of Season 2. We last saw his work for the outstanding Season 1 finale, Follow the Leader. This one was a bit complicated given all the time-consuming setups for process shots and wire work. As a result, the shoot went long and was spread over seven and a half days from June 29th through the 11th of July, 1966. It aired on Wednesday night, September 11th, 1966, and got a summer repeat on May 10th, 1967. All the regular characters are featured in this one, and guest starring as the green space Lorelei, as the character was referred to in the script, was 29-year-old Fatina Marcus. Alan was fond of the shapely actress dating back to 1960, when he cast her as a scantily clad native girl dodging dinosaurs in his feature movie, The Lost World. 
he rehired her to wear the exact same outfit in two episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and she would reprise her role as the girl from the Green Dimension in another Season 2 episode of Lost in Space. Oh, wow. Two different series, but the same exact actress in the exact same costume? He didn't even bother to have them spray paint it brown like he did the Gill Man and change the space? Whoa, whoa. Talk about chutzpah. Yeah. And this is color, too, so it's really all the more obvious. Yep. Well, one of the things that made her character so memorable was her very alien singing voice, which is kind of creepy. At first, no one knew what she was doing because it was a complete ad lib, entirely Vatina's idea. Well, Richardson loved it and wound up leaving it in. So the rest, as they say, is history. Mm. Yeah, I did like that. Mm-hmm. Costume designer Paul Z also enjoyed working with Marcus and was particularly proud of the skin-tight green outfit and inventive headgear he crafted for her character that was actually made from a large plastic salad bowl. Huh. So does that mean her hairdresser was really salad dressing? I'm just mm. curious. <laughs> <laughs> Well, also, just like Blast Off Into Space, Wild Adventure featured another original score. This one by Alexander Courage, most famous as the composer for the title theme of Star Trek The Original Series. His eerie cue for the green space siren is remarkably similar to music he scored for the first Star Trek pilot, The Cage, which featured another green-painted space beauty, the Orion slave girl played by the lovely Susan Oliver. Oh, I, I guess he heard Irwin like to recycle everything on Lost in Space, so he figured, hey, why waste time being original? <laughs> uh, That's funny. Well, with that, let's get on with the story. As we earlier heard, the Act 1 teaser starts out with the narrator announcing, Last week, our space pioneers were unaware that a giant space mass was hurtling out of the blackness directly for them. And sure enough, although they're close to two million miles out in space and traveling near the speed of light... Whoa, 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 whoa. hold your horses, partner. You didn't think I was going to let a blooper like that slip by, did you? Uh, They claim they're traveling close to the speed of light, and yet when Genius Will says they must have traveled nearly a million miles out in space, know-it-all dad corrects him by saying... Closer to two million, son. (laughs) Now, as we all know, light travels 186,000 miles per second. If they were traveling anywhere close to the speed of light, they would be hundreds of millions, if not billions of miles out in space. You'd think after a year of writing a sci-fi story about interstellar space travel, they'd at least get that part right, you know? Mm. I mean, come on. (laughs) Jeez. Uh, Well, no matter how far out in space they are or how fast they're traveling... Suddenly, a huge flaming red space mass appears out of nowhere, filling up the large main viewport and causing Dr. Smith to cower behind the robot and shriek in terror. Oh, oh, we're going to crash! But there's no time to avoid the galactic globule, and instead, the Jupiter 2 flies right into the dead center of the mammoth mass. Good heavens! Happily, the ship passes right through it without being smashed to smithereens. Using the brand new matter analyzer at the upgraded communication console, Will quickly determines that the object is in fact a colossal cosmic dust bunny. (laughs) 
I gotta ask Kurt, did that teaser seem like a little bit of a cheat to you? Man, I joked about them cheating the audience last time like they did in the raft with the force field. Remember that? Mm-hmm. But honestly, I had completely forgotten that's exactly what they did. My subconscious must have completely blotted that out of my memory banks. Such was my embarrassment and guilt at being such a vocal advocate for this show, especially when defending it at Star Trek conventions. So for the <laughs> record, all you Trekkers out there, even the ones with your Spock ears, I apologize. You were right. Loss in space can be... Highly illogical. <laughs> oh man. Well, but it looked cool. I did love the color, you know, and as they went through and everything. But I mean, come on. I know, I know. But it's sort of like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's but, just a giant space dust bunny. Exactly. Cosmic dust, Dad. Well, after the ship emerges unscathed from the far side of the cosmic dust ball, everyone breathes a sigh of relief, and our panicky protagonist recovers his composure, then chides Professor Robinson and Major West. There was no need for panic. If either of you had thought to switch on the matter analyzer before you hit the alarm, the women and children would have been spared a terrifying ordeal. John's forced to admit for once Smith's right, which causes the good doctor to add sectimoniously. Try not to let it happen again, please. (laughs) A little later, before we go to opening credits, the Jupiter 2 is still streaking through space. Meanwhile, by the Astrogator, Dr. Smith is busily computing their position with the help of B9, as well as a slide rule, pencil, and paper, when suddenly he shouts with glee that, He's got it! Their present position and course for Earth. And what's more, they're mere four days, seven hours, and 43 minutes from home! (laughs) You know, Kurt, that's great news, but I am confused, because wasn't it originally a five-year mission from Earth to Alpha Centauri? But if it's true that Earth's only four days away now, I for one think it'd be worth a detour to drop Smith off first and then head to Alpha Centauri. How about you? Oh, absolutely. Unload the space albatross before he causes any more near disasters, especially if you have a wife who won't let you kill him. But in answer to your other question, Will told us in Return to Outer Space that Preplanus was on the other side of the galaxy. So unless John or Don is high on spice and can fold space like the guild navigators of Dune can, there is no effing way they can get to Earth in four days, let alone weeks, months, or even years. They gotta boot up the hyperdrive, because even light speed won't get them anywhere close to that in their lifetime. Remember, they did hit the hyperdrive to get out to Preplanus, but they didn't do it to get back, so it doesn't make any sense at all. Right, that's true, That they went into a hyperdrive, didn't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this makes no sense whatsoever, but... It also doesn't make sense that Smith is suddenly now an expert in space navigation. Oh, I thought the same thing. Unless, of course, he's lying. Yeah. The audacity. And, I, you know, it's also worth noting that when he did that little retort about, uh, please try not to let it happen again, Professor Robinson was actually being kind of nice, saying, well, he's right, you know, uh, we, we shouldn't trust our eyes. We should instead read the instruments. Yeah, he's just being courteous, but even Smith, he can't even let that slip by without, you know, turning it into another insult. Wow. <laughs> At least he's consistent. Yeah, well, I'll give you a little forewarning. He really gets on my nerves in this episode, and it's just because of that type of attitude. He won't let it go. Every opportunity. That's true. 
Well, without asking permission, Dr. Smith then tries to change their course away from Alpha Centauri and towards the green hills of Earth. causing Don to leap from his seat and struggle with the desperate doctor for control of the ship. Despite the Major's best effort to peel Smith away from the astrogator, the fixated physician has a death grip on the navigational joystick and manages to rip the control right out of its socket. Sending the Jupiter-2 careening wildly across the cosmos and out of control. Oh dear, now what? I was expecting Major West to rip Smith's spine from his body and use that to replace the joystick. I know that's what I would have done. And compared to Major West, my temper is mild, so go figure. Oh, that's incredible. Yes. Well, thanks to Smith's Earth fever, this adventure's off to a wild start indeed. So you better strap into your space couches, folks, and hold on until after the new colorful main titles to see what happens next. Hi, this is author Mark Cushman. I wrote the books on Lost in Space, and you're listening to Alpha Control Podcast with Lane and Kurt. When we return from the break, the episode credits are still rolling by, just like the Jupiter 2. Inside the ship, our space pioneers are being tossed about like rag dolls, and the controls have erupted with showers of sparks and flash powder explosions. With great effort, the professor manages to hotwire the astrogator so Don can plug the joystick back into its socket and somehow regain control of the spaceship. When calm is finally restored, Don catches his breath and then turns his ire on Smith as he points to the astrogator. From now on, you stay away from this. Surely, Major, you don't blame me for this mishap? Who should I blame? Why, yourself, of course. If you hadn't been so heavy-handed... Enraged, Major West makes a threatening move towards Smith and demands the mischievous medic hand over a slip of paper which contains their position and course for Earth. But when John firmly reiterates that their destination is Alpha Centauri, Dr. Smith threatens to eat the paper unless the professor gives his word that they'll use his precious calculations to return to terra firma. Smith ups the ante by reminding the men that he was only able to plot their position by sighting a familiar star, so the odds are a million to one that the men would ever be able to duplicate his work. With little choice, Professor Robinson reluctantly gives in to the blackmail and agrees, provided Smith's computations are correct. Delighted at the turn of events, Dr. Smith sings merrily as he descends to the lower deck on the electronic elevator, to share the good news with the others. We're going back to Earth, to wonderful, wonderful Earth. A ball I recall is the best part of all in all the universe. Oh, we're going back to Earth. We're really going back to Earth. After the dastardly doctor's gone, the men check his results with the robot. B9, who strangely until now has maintained a golden silence, confirms that the computation is indeed correct. However, 
he further reveals that the data is not Smith's work, but his. And you know, Kurt, I do feel like I've asked this before. Maybe I'm becoming a broken record, but why? Why did the robot keep quiet while Dr. Smith was conning and extorting Professor Robinson? For that matter, why was Smith so sure that B-9 wouldn't rat him out? Well, maybe the robot didn't say anything because he wants to return to Earth as well. Ironic, isn't it? John said in the very first episode he was going to let the computer decide whether they should go to Alpha Centauri or return to Earth. And sure enough, the computer has decided. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought about that. That computes. (laughs) Well, despite having been bamboozled, John tells the Major that since he gave his word to Smith, Earth it is. Thankfully, before Don resets the astrogator, the robot adds one last vital piece of information. As I informed Dr. Smith, Earth course is not advisable. B-9 starts to explain why, but before we're let in on the secret, the scene dissolves to some time later. Next, our space family, including the Bloop, are seated around the galley table as Professor Robinson finishes the blessing before eating their first computerized meal in space. Galactic Epicurean Zachary turns his nose up at the little plastic bags of concentrated hyperprotein pellets rolling out on the conveyor belt. And no matter how fresh the man from GLAD claims those baggies keep food, these must have spoiled because even little Debbie spits out the pellet she samples. Yeah, you know, it kind of reminded me of those uh, sushi tables they have in Japan, you know, with the conveyor belt rolling out and everything. But I I was wondering exactly what the food was. You know, were these like transistor chips? And (laughs) (laughs) uh, it didn't look that appetizing, that's for sure. Uh, That's funny. Shaking her head with a smile, Judy says she's going to miss their hydroponic garden. (laughs) Smith scowls. I think I'll go on a hunger strike until we reach home. That's when Professor Robinson informs the group that they're not returning to Earth. What? You gave me your word of honor. Ah, but of course Dr. Smith conveniently left out the one detail that makes their return to home impossible. According to B9's information, at this time of year, the sun is directly between their position and Earth. And if that traitorous electronic junk pile hadn't spilled the beans they'd have been caught in the sun's gravitational pull and roasted alive. Unmoved, Smith desperately claims they can maneuver around the sun. But that's a risk John's just not willing to take. You've broken your solemn word of honor, Professor. I warn you, I will not go to Alpha Centauri. Major West answers for the Professor. No one says you have to, Smith. Anytime you want to, I'll stop the Jupiter 2 and let you off. Bah! Incensed at being thwarted, Dr. Smith stomps out of the galley in a huff. But the rest of the castaways are upbeat at the prospect of continuing their wild adventures on Alpha Centauri. You know, Smith isn't the only one who felt cheated by that explanation. They expect us to believe that the Jupiter 2 can navigate thousands of light years from Earth but can't go around one of the galaxy's smaller stars? It's a sun, (laughs) not a black hole. I mean, come on. If the planets can orbit it without getting sucked in, then a spacecraft with atomic power should be able to manage. You know, come on. Just just take the scenic route, guys. That's what all the fuel reserves are for. Wow. Uh, Yeah, that sun's going to sneak up on them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. 
Later, with the act reaching a climax, we're back topside as Dr. Smith and the robot glide up on the electronic elevator. Ah, did you notice the robot's rotating ears are no longer working? That repair job between seasons worked all of one episode, and now it's on the fritz again. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe Irwin's just too cheap to buy the new batteries, you know, I don't know. Oh, man. No, I kind of missed that. I I sort of knew they didn't last long, but I, I stopped checking for that. Good catch. Well, checking to make sure the coast is clear, our malevolent malefactor with the clumsy clump and toe eases over to the astrogator, which he discovers has been locked on course to prevent Smith from tampering with it. They've locked the astrogator. That is a true statement. Do they think that will stop me? Your question cannot be answered. Insufficient data. I'll answer it for you, you ninny. Removing the ring from his finger, Smith asks, Do you see this ring? then drops it on B9's upper torso, where it lands like a bug on flypaper. Magnetic material. Exactly. Quite capable of deflecting this astrogator to any course I choose. Plucking his ring back, Smith demonstrates with a flourish. Observe. As he circles the astrogator, he uses his magic ring to carefully pull the instrument's course guidance ring around back to a heading for Earth. And sure enough, we cut to a shot of the Jupiter 2 making a slow left turn in the opposite direction. Now, interestingly, Kurt, our listener and Lost in Space prop expert Bill Hedges informed me that this course ring was a new Season 2 addition to the Astrogator that was specifically added to accommodate this plot point in the script. They'll do that a lot in season two and add pieces of gear here and there just for the story. Ah, yes, the magnetic ring. He's been wearing that thing an entire season just waiting for the opportunity to use it on something. But you may be interested to know that according to lostinspacefandom.com, in the early drafts of the first episode, Shimon Rinsenberg originally had that ring poison-tipped and shaped like a heart inscribed with the word mother. Mm. <laughs> And if that wasn't enough, Dr. Smith was originally stuck outside the Jupiter 2 in his car trying to figure out how to bypass the spaceship's invisible force field. So he tricks a young woman into picking a flower for him. And when she walks into the energy field, she's instantly incinerated. Mm. (laughs) How's that for super cool and super cruel? Oh, and by the way, he supposedly killed the guard by breaking his neck with that Austin Powers judo chop. (laughs) But that all got watered down by Irwin to keep CBS happy. Still, we've come a long way from the murderous Dr. Smith to this sneaky but cowardly clown. Mm. Kind of a reverse evolution, if you will. Wow, he was really a murderous fiend, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, but you know, it just the only thing he's going to kill now will be a fly if we're lucky. Mm. Well, he's certainly killing the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Well, delighted with this turn of events, Smith leaves his tricky ring on the guidance control to ensure they stay headed for home, then begins singing to himself again. We're on our way to Earth again, to wonderful, wonderful Earth again. Now, Bola is the best part of all. And- attention! Attention! New course requires reprogramming of fuel consumption distance ratios. But why don't you attend to that little problem, dear boy? Negative. I have no information on the procedures. 
gazing out into space through the main viewport, the deluded doctor blusters. But it shouldn't be too difficult to figure out. Let me see. Yes, it's all right here. Throwing random switches willy-nilly on the flight deck's main control panel, Smith confidently adds, Here are, yes, here are some pretty ones. But with the last switch he flips... The camera cuts to an impressive special effect shot, showing dozens of tiny deuteronium fuel cells tumbling out of the rear of the Jupiter II and drifting off into the icy cold of outer space. Uh-oh. Yeah. That was a great effect shot of the canisters being dumped into space. It was a little difficult to appreciate because of the anger boiling in my veins over Smith. I wasn't even sure what they were. I just knew it was going to somehow ruin their chances of getting back to Earth because that's what Smith does. It's so infuriating. I know. He just starts flipping switches. Like... Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, there's a pretty one. Yeah. <laughs> back inside the ship, an emergency alarm sounds, and the Jupiter begins to buffet from the sudden loss of mass. Smith's also alarmed, and his confidence is jettisoned just as quickly as those fuel canisters, because the robot informs the jittery doctor he's dumped practically their whole fuel supply. Nervously, Dr. Smith asks, Did... did we need that fuel? In a few hours, this ship will be out of fuel and helpless. Wow. (laughs) When the men find out about this one, Kurt, I'm not sure even Professor Robinson will be able to prevent Don from hitting the emergency Dr. Smith dump switch this time. Oh, man, it's incidents like this that explain why the robot is programmed never to do any human's harm because it had to know that Smith was an existential threat to the robot, the ship, and the entire crew. If not for that pre-programmed prime directive, B-9 would have to crush, kill, destroy, and I, for one, would have been right behind him. Oh, my gosh. Well, you might never have noticed that fuel jettison alarm panel located above the gyroscope before. There's a good reason for that, Kurt. That's because it replaced the robot power panel from the reluctant stowaway, which had Smith pooping pellets in his pants when he saw that it was active eight hours after liftoff. And this is just yet another new piece of gear specifically added to serve as a plot point in this episode. It's funny how all these upgrades and modifications are made to the ship, and yet... None of the crew ever mentions it at all. <laughs> yeah, well, how could they mention it? I mean, where they go, well, good thing we replaced that panel with the uh, dump the petroleum canister switch. <laughs> oh, oh, it's man. funny. Well, Kurt, as Smith slinks down behind the pilot's chair, I guess he's got until we get back from this station identification to come up with an excuse good enough to avoid his own funeral in space. Oh, I hope he doesn't, because I'd love to see that funeral. (laughs) Lost in Space will continue after station identification. TV2, Chicago. When we return from the break to start Act 2, the fuel jettison alarm brings the Professor and Major West rushing up to the flight deck, where they quickly discover Smith looking like the cat who ate the canary. 
John announces that they have power for 20 to 25 hours, no more, which means they need to find some place to land and fast. Racing over to the astrogator, Don quickly discovers Dr. Smith's trick magnetic ring. And despite the mendacious medic's meek excuse that he must have absentmindedly left it there, a fuming Professor Robinson instantly figures out that Smith has once more altered their course for Earth. The doctor rushes away from the angry professor before he can lay hands on him, only to run into Major West, who's waiting for him on the other side of the astrogator. Waving the doctor's ring in his face, Don seethes. All right, Smith, this time you've had it. I'm going to take you apart bit by bit and throw the pieces away. (laughs) Focused on the navigation controls, John barks at Smith to get below and stay there. Indignantly taking his ring back from Don, the good doctor then scurries down the ladder to safety. Oh man, I would have locked him in the airlock where you could not only keep an eye on him, but let him sweat a bit while the rest of the crew gets to vote on whether to open the outer door. (laughs) Well, after Smith's gone, Professor Robinson announces in frustration that there are no planets within range of their remaining fuel. It looks like all is lost, but suddenly John recalls a string of unmanned fuel barges that Alpha Control had set up a year before they launched as refueling stations for the Intergalactic Probe 22. Mm. Mm -hmm. The professor determines that conveniently, they're just barely within range of those galactic gas stations. It sure is a lucky break for our castaways. Oh man, luck does not begin to describe it. The professor specifically said that their location was on the edge of the Cerebius galaxy. Now, I don't know where that is. I've never even heard of that galaxy, but I have heard of the Milky Way, which is our galaxy. And I bet I'm not the only one wondering, how can they be just four days from Earth traveling less than the speed of light and not even be in our galaxy? I mean, come on, it's the second season. Shouldn't the writers or at least the story editor know the difference between solar systems and galaxies by now? I mean... The average distance between galaxies is 9,900,000 light years. I know because I use my tape measure. Okay, maybe I Googled it. But the point is, it takes a lot more than four days to go anywhere in space, especially at sublight speed between galaxies. They should know this by now. It isn't rocket science. Okay, well, maybe it is kind of like rocket science. We'll call it saucer science. But still, if you don't have Google and you're writing about space, at least crack open an encyclopedia. I mean, this is so far off, it's insane. Yeah, it makes you wonder why they ever bothered putting freezing tubes inside the Jupiter 2 if they're so close to all these galaxies and stars and Earth and everything. Well, maybe they kind of got the solar system and the galaxy thing confused again. And just as the Earth rotates around the sun, maybe they thought the galaxy rotates around preplanus and preplanus is now closer to Earth or something. That's just weird. Uh, it is funny. Without further ado, the men set a new course for the nearest space barge, and the Jupiter 2 is shown once more, making a gentle turn in a new direction. I'm losing track. This must be the third or fourth turn we've made in this episode so far, Kurt, but if I know Smith, 
We haven't seen the last course change yet. Yeah, that's for sure. If he attempts anything else on this trip and John doesn't execute him on the spot, then I say two executions are justified. Smith for sabotage and John for dereliction of duty. (laughs) Hear, hear. Well, next, some hours later, we're looking over Professor Robinson's shoulder through the main viewport as the giant silver space barge comes into view. It's a pretty interesting-looking miniature with three large cylindrical fuel tanks lashed together around a central docking structure just large enough for a spaceship the size of the Jupiter II. That was lucky. Mm -hmm. The miniature footage in this episode is marvelous, though. It's too marvelous to be used only once by Irwin Allen. And in fact, it would be recycled later in the Season 3 episode, The Haunted Lightship. Okay, and let me guess. It's on the other side of the universe, but Irwin didn't even bother to change the number on the fuel barge. (laughs) It'll still say F-12 in giant letters in the viewport, where no one could possibly miss it. Am I right? (laughs) Wild guess here, guys. Yeah, wild guess. That's funny. Well, since this is a self-service truck stop, Will helps Major West suit up for a spacewalk, while Professor Robinson uses the ship's radar to lock onto and hold a steady course for their space rendezvous. Just then, John ominously announces he's detected several small bloops, uh, I mean blips, about the size of a man clustered around the station. But obviously those objects couldn't be men, he adds, there aren't any planets around here. Hmm. And he's right, they are not men. (laughs) (laughs) Those strange readings don't deter our fearless castaways, because next we're shown some more cool special effect shots of the Jupiter 2 on final approach for the fuel barge, while Major West enters the airlock in preparation for the refueling operation. You know, those were very cool uh, special effects shots. They were every bit as cool as any special effect you see on Star Trek. In fact, I wonder if the competition of Star Trek may have helped inspire Irwin to blast off into space and step up his game some, because uh, they really seem to be going the extra mile these last couple of episodes. Yeah, enjoy them while they last. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) Hate to say it. Well, I'm going to take my turn at nitpicking, Kurt, because to me, there's a big series continuity error here. And as far as I can tell, there's no logical or story element reason for it. I'm talking about the spacewalk. The last time we saw someone do a spacewalk in this series was at the very beginning of season one. And at that time, Don volunteered to go, but Professor Robinson refused to allow it. And instead, he went outside. Then when his line broke, John again insisted that someone else besides Major West go outside. Why? Because Don was the only one qualified to pilot the ship. Later, we learned that even the robot was unable to fly the Jupiter II. But apparently, while they were marooned on Preplanus, the professor used his spare time to take flying lessons because otherwise, I can't understand why Don's going out for this spacewalk that seem odd to you, Kurt, or am I missing something here? Oh, well, you forget two things. First off, John is an educated man. He learned from his first experience that as long as West is the only pilot, 
John would have to be the one to risk his life whenever danger is involved in space. Mm. So naturally, it makes sense. It makes total sense for him to have Wes train him so that the Major will be more expendable. Secondly, John is a father, and he knows all about the birds and the bees. He knows what the Major and his daughter have really been doing on their long walks. And there's no way he is going to suit up and float out that airlock, leaving a testosterone-fueled military man in charge of his ship, his wife, and his two daughters. I can relate. The sooner Don puts the ring on it, the safer his air supply will be. (laughs) (laughs) And that's coming from a man with two daughters. Uh... That's funny. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought of that angle. That's pretty good. That's because you got all sons. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, that's crazy. Well, anyway, Major West stands by in the airlock, and with Will's assistance, the professor makes a successful, if a little bumpy, landing on that space barge. With docking complete, John and Will move to the comm station, Switching on the view screen to monitor Don's progress, Major West must be in a hurry because somehow he's already out the airlock and floating away from the ship. Even though the Major reports everything's A-OK, John cautions him to stay in close voice contact as he's moving outside their monitor radius. During the refueling process, my spidey sense started to tingle when Don mentioned that the fuel gauge reads down by a quarter, even though there's no indication that any other ship ever docked there. John's just as mystified as we are by the revelation, telling Will, even if there were a leak, there should still be traces of fuel floating around. Hmm. In any event, within a matter of moments, Major West reports that the refueling is complete and he's headed back. You gotta love the speed in which Don refills that ship. He hooks up the line, and then in two seconds, their supposedly empty tank is suddenly full. (laughs) Wow. You know, NASCAR pit stop teams have nothing on Major West. He's got to be the fastest refueler in the universe. Yeah, it actually takes him longer to get back in the ship than it did to do the refueling. That was like, (laughs) that part seemed pretty padded to me, honestly. But uh, anyway, by the way, I did like the way... (laughs) Mark Goddard was delivering his lines while he was out there in space in a real slow-mo cadence. Everything's a okay Well, just then, we can hear Don seemingly speaking to some unseen person outside the ship with him. Uh-oh. I guess he forgets his intercom wasn't on. <laughs> How they gonna hear him in space? <laughs> well, alarmed by Don's strange transmission, John shouts over the intercom, asking, "What's wrong?" But Major West just cryptically answers that he's okay and coming back in now. That caused more spidey tingles for me, Kurt. But after Don's safely back inside the ship. A smiling Dr. Smith appears from below deck, wearing a stethoscope around his neck. Bravo, Major, bravo! You've done it again. I congratulate you on your bravery. What are you doing up here? You were ordered to stay below. Smith claims he just wanted to check over the Major after his little walk in space. But Don's not interested. Something's got him rattled, and he asks the Professor and Will if they saw anything strange while he was out there. Not a thing, says John. Could it be that our poor Major is suffering from hallucinations? 
Still doubting himself, Don finally admits that he thought he saw a floating figure ducking in and out behind the fuel barges. Hmm. John and Will take it seriously, but Dr. Smith has another diagnosis. Space rapture. That's probably what it was. When the too rigid military mind snaps, it goes all the way. I'm afraid our poor Major is sick. Sick, 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 sick. John orders Smith to button it, but Will excitedly says he wishes he'd have seen it. You might, my boy, you might. But a fine scientific mind like mine could never be fooled by such a mirage. Exasperated with the good doctor's unhelpful interjections, Professor Robinson orders the robot to escort Smith back below, where until further notice he's confined to quarters. Taking one last shot before departing, Dr. Smith declares... And the next time you need an aspirin, Major, I'll refer you to the nearest drugstore. Then he spits a little venom at his electronic escort. Traitor. Adding as they descend below deck. I'll attend to you later. (laughs) With Dr. Smith out of the way, a beaming Professor Robinson reprograms the astrogator and announces, Well, next stop, Alpha Centauri. It seems like our castaways' troubles are behind them, but somehow, Kurt, I have a feeling this wild adventure has only just begun. It's almost like Smith is just daring them to punish him. I mean, he is dancing on Don's last nerve. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, back down below, a scowling Dr. Smith exits the electronic elevator with a robot right on his heels. Pausing in irritation, Smith commands, Stop following me, you clanking clout. I have my orders. Well, I'm giving you new orders. You get up there and reset our course for Earth. As the robot shuffles even closer, Dr. Smith opens the crash doors on the lower viewport and looks out into space. My orders are not to leave you. Well, disobey them. Have you no mind of your own? Negative. I am a robot. You are a deplorable dummy. The doctor comically struggles to remove the stethoscope from his neck, finally throwing it down in disgust. No! Calming down, he stares out at the beautiful crab nebula, then mutters to himself, Somehow I've got to find a way to alter our course. And right on cue, an accordion door slides open, revealing Penny. Oh, hello, Dr. Smith. Dressed for bed, and on her way up to the control room to say goodnight to Dad and Don, seeing a new way to get his way by using a proxy, Smith dons a pious expression and falsely claims he's been banished for falling asleep on watch. B-9 butts in to set the record straight, but before he can, Smith silences the ninny by pulling out his power pack. With the ten-plated tattletale sidelined, Smith spends more lies, telling the dear child that he also forgot to reset the astrogator. Using all his charm and acting ability, Smith convinces the girl to help him stay out of trouble by covertly resetting the astrogator to the coordinates on his little scrap of paper. Despite her qualms and not realizing the deceitful doctors tricked her into turning the ship yet again towards Earth, Smith's dear, dear little friend ascends the elevator on her mission of mercy. Once she's disappeared... Smith waves the power pack at the doubled-over robot and gloats. Big mouth. (laughs) Boy, does he manipulate that girl. She's like Penny Putty in his hands. That's for sure. 
Well, sometime later, with the act nearing a close, we see Dr. Smith staring out at the stars, nervously tapping B9's power pack on a computer console as he waits anxiously for Penny to return. Glaring at the robot, who's still dead as a coffin nail, he complains, What is keeping that child? With no one else to turn to for solace, he grudgingly restores his cybernetic sidekick's power pack. But after snapping back to attention, the lily-livered, lead-lined Lummox has insufficient data and comfort to offer the doctor. Fortunately, just at that moment, the dear child returns, reporting, much to Smith's delight, mission accomplished. Ushering Penny into her cabin, he quickly bids her goodnight and pleasant dreams. Then tells B-9 with a sigh, There's more than one way to skin a cat, dear boy. There are exactly 37 ways. And I've used them all. I must have a very limited imagination because I can only think of one way to skin a cat and it's not very pretty. Mm. I mean, really, how many... I always hear that expression. It doesn't make any sense. There's more than one way to skin... What are the other ways? Yeah, you're thinking about it a little too deeply. (laughs) Don't ask me. Oh, that's funny. Oh, Dr. Smith. With his back to the lower viewport, Smith answers in irritation. Yes? You disconnected my power pack. I must ask for a complete report of what transpired while I was deactivated. None of your business, you scurrilous scatterbrain. Unbeknownst to the fussing friends, we can see a strange, smiling green lady wearing only skin-tight leotards and a clear plastic salad bowl (laughs) on her head, floating effortlessly in space just outside the viewport. It is required that my memory banks be constantly in operation in order for me to record any dangerous scientific phenomena in outer space. Glowering back, Dr. Smith retorts, Dangerous scientific phenomena indeed. You blithering booby. What could possibly be out there at all that nothingness? Turning away from B9 in disgust, Smith gets his answer as he comes close up and face to face with that lime-colored Lorelei and screams in horror at the sight. Who's experiencing space rapture now? It's a bit odd that the robot doesn't react to the presence of the girl. You would think a danger, danger warning would be at hand, or at least some sort of acknowledgement. I mean, she's right there in front of him. No, he's still as a statue. He's just standing there. It's weird. That's a good point. Well, in any event, as the green girl beckons Smith with open arms, singing her eerie siren song, I have a feeling this adventure's only going to get wilder. So stay tuned until after the commercial, kids, to see more. Lost in Space, brought to you by... Hi, honey. When did you fix this sandwich? Last night, dear. Seemed like last year. It's hard as my heart. Richard! Man from Glad, man from Glad, husband flipping his lid. Hold on to your hat. Get Glad sandwich bags with a fold lock top. Fold this flap in, this flap over. Fold lock top locks in sandwich, freshness and flavor. My hat's off to Glad. Get Glad sandwich bags with a fold lock top from Union Carbide. When we return from the break to start Act 3... The Robinsons have all been roused from their bed by Dr. Smith's screams of terror. 
but his wild story about a green lady floating around in space has the family in stitches. Earlier, the doctor diagnosed Don as being sick, sick, sick. But now it's Major West who's convinced that Smith's the one who's finally flipped his wig. Which was kind of strange if you think about it. I mean, he thought he saw a figure out in space before, but I don't know. Uh Well, you know, you talk about flipping his wig, but in actuality, if anything flipped, it would be Jonathan Harris's hair transplant. Because according to Eisner and the Megan book, Lost in Space Forever, Jonathan Harris returned from season one hiatus with his hair transplanted from the back of his head to the top of it. And it was done in Switzerland during the break. So close observers may notice a little less scalp on the Royal Smithsonian crown this season. <laughs> That's funny. The other thing I remember is in certain interviews, he would claim that he had his hair colored gray to add a little more seasoning to his character. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, isn't that funny? Yeah. Oh, I just add this in to look more distinguished. (laughs) I'll have to remember that one. You know, I have like, uh, we had five brothers in my family and three sisters, but all the brothers are older. And uh, whenever I'm with them, inevitably one of them says like, are you dyeing your hair? You're dying your hair, aren't you? And I know they just hates it because I'm not all gray, but I have a little gray around my tip. And so I says, yes, yes, you caught me. I'm dying my hair. I add a little gray to the tipples just so you don't feel so old. <laughs> oh, they hate that. Great minds think alike, yeah. Well, the only one who seems to take Dr. Smith seriously is young Will. And he asked permission to stay up with the rattled rascal as a witness in case the pretty girl in the golden green leotard returns. Mom and dad consent, but warn the boy not to stay up too late. Then the rest of the chuckling castaways turn in for the night. Imagine that. They all think Smith is lying or crazy. I wonder where they got that idea, where that reputation came from. Later, the boys pass the time over a game of chess while they wait to see if that elegant emerald emissary returns. The only problem is, the way they're seated is a dead giveaway where this scene is headed next, Kurt. Nervous Nellie Smith is sitting facing the viewport, while on the opposite side of the chessboard, his stalwart little chap has his back to the window. (laughs) Yeah, I saw that one coming a million light years away. (laughs) Well, there's not much time for kibitzing before Dr. Smith screams in horror at the sight of his green-suited suitor floating outside the glass. But when he alerts Will, the boy takes forever to look over his shoulder, giving the green dear lady enough time to float out of view. Hmm. Seeing nothing but stars, Will looks back at Smith with a dubious expression but stays tight-lipped. I know what you're thinking, but I tell you she was there. It's my move, Dr. Smith. And gets them back to the game. But a minute later, Smith looks up from the board only to discover that she's back. (laughs) This time, Dr. Smith tries to stay calm and nonchalantly tells Will to slowly turn around. A little too slowly, because yet again, the nubile nymph ducks out of view. No! No! Will! Quick! Quick! A split second before Will has a chance to catch a glimpse of her, causing Smith to melt down in frustration when the boy insists 
there was nothing there. Yeah, why, why would you tell somebody to slowly turn around when you know that the thing is starting to, to veer off the screen? <laughs> turn now! Wow. And as she's sliding down below the, the window frame, he's like, <laughs> I could feel his frustration, yeah. though. I have to admit, that's got to be the worst. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, at that point, Will decides to play psychoanalyst, suggesting that Smith's hallucinations might be the result of a guilty conscience. Oh boy, he's barking up the wrong tree there. (laughs) Touché. First you have to have a conscience to feel guilty about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Well, Smith rejects Will's theory, insisting that the green beauty swimming in space is real. Will remains unconvinced, though. So Daddy Zack indignantly ends their game of great minds and rushes his skeptical sidekick off to bed. Still concerned for Dr. Smith's well-being, the boy asks, Are you sure you'll be okay? Of course. Pointing a disdainful finger over his shoulder at B9, he adds, And if I should require company, there's always that one. With Will gone, Smith walks over to the window and is startled again by the return of the spellbinding sprite blowing kisses and singing his name as she hovers just inches away on the other side of the glass. Oh, the pain. Kurt, I thought that weird siren song she was singing, combined with the eerie underscore, really worked here. It added to the creepiness of the scene. But I kind of remember the first time I saw this episode, I was really unsure. Was Smith hallucinating, or was the green lady supposed to be real? How did you take it? Well, uh, given that Don saw something, I was inclined to believe that she was real. The most unbelievable part for me wasn't that she could be heard through the titanium hull in the vacuum of space, (laughs) or that she somehow could breathe in space and travel alongside the Jupiter 2 at near light speed. Nope, nope, nope. That was all plausible compared to the most unbelievable aspect, which was that she was somehow attracted to Dr. Smith. (laughs) Oh, that's true. Well, after the green siren drifts out of view once again, Smith regains his composure, then orders B-9 to stand guard at the viewport and signal him immediately if she returns. Stressed out and exhausted, Smith falls asleep. But moments later, the chartreuse Cherub returns just outside the window. Following orders, the robot alerts the dozing doctor. Attention, Dr. Smith! Attention, Dr. Smith! I'm innocent! Coming to his senses, the good doctor joins the robot. Both boys appear transfixed by the strange scene. Even though B9 says the green girl does not compute, at least he confirms that he really sees her. Greatly relieved that he's not balmy, Smith demands to know who she is, what she is, and why no one else can see her. Translating her lilting musical language as a mathematical progression, B9 reports the alien is from the people of the Green Mist. What's more, she's in love with Smith and wants him to come away with her. Uh Uh-oh. You know what? Going back to that bit about the translating her lilting musical language as a mathematical progression, he was translating just the sounds, the tones, because, I mean, she just repeated the same thing over and over again. She didn't use any different words. No. Yeah, she just kept saying, Smith, Smith. Yes, it's also amazing that B9 happens to be able to compute (laughs) 
<laughs> he got a lot out of those few little words, didn't he? Yeah, especially since his ears weren't working. <laughs> uh, great point. Well, flattered but unsure about life in green mist, Dr. Smith's courtship is interrupted by the shrill sound of an alarm coming from the upper deck. The blaring signal brings the rest of the family barreling out of their cabins, and everyone races upstairs only to learn that the ship's external temperature has inexplicably started to climb. With the act reaching a boiling point, Professor Robinson and Major West quickly discover the ship's course has been once more altered, and they're headed back towards Earth again. In a case like this, Kurt, it's time to round up the usual suspect, Dr. Smith. (laughs) But now the whole temperature isn't the only thing getting hot. Don's on fire. Dragging Smith over to the main viewport, he grabs the cowering cad by the jaw, forcing him to face the consequences of his actions. Do you know what you've done? Do you realize what's going to happen because you wouldn't listen? Well, take a look. Take a look out there. Do you see that? That's a death warrant. I don't know what you mean. I don't see anything. But now the space outside the window has turned blood red from the light of a fast approaching sphere of fire. Equally steamed at Smith's double talk, John bolts over and barks. Oh no? Well look again at that flaring star out there. You mean that flaring star? Yes, I can see it. It happens to be the sun. Our sun. The sun that Earth orbits. Its temperature is so high it can reduce the hull of this ship to butter. And we're heading straight for it. The camera cuts away to the rest of the family who appear shocked at the revelation. But Smith continues to claim innocence. But I had nothing to do with it. I haven't touched the instruments. Well, if you didn't, Dr. Smith, I'd certainly like to know who did. Before Smith can parse any more words, a deeply upset Penny interjects and confesses that she was the one who touched that knob on the astrogator. Mom and Dad are momentarily caught off guard by the girl's baffling confession, but Don immediately cuts a suspicious glance in Smith's direction. Voice cracking, Penny tries to explain without betraying their little secret, but finally admits that she was only trying to help Dr. Smith. The doctor's lame response that he can explain everything falls on deaf ears. Right now, the men have to find a solution to this burning issue, And if anyone can come up with an answer, it's our good old Professor Know-It-All. I'm almost as pissed at John as I am at Smith. He's putting everyone's life at risk, keeping Smith on board. He's the master of disaster just waiting to explode. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll see more of that. John tries to plot a new course based on a space-time solution, whatever that is. Don says the best they can hope for now is a near miss. But even a near miss will mean incredibly high temperatures, and though the Jupiter's titanium hull can handle it, it's going to get pretty rough inside the ship. That's when Don blurts out, There'll be one pleasure in this, Smith, watching you fry. Oh, wow, there's spite and then there's uber spite. And someone willing to embrace death, kill his girlfriend, her parents, and all her siblings just to see someone else die? Now that's spite. (laughs) Yep. As the ship begins to shudder under the gravitational pull of the sun, the camera cuts between the worried, sweat-covered faces of our space family 
and the deadly glare from that flaming ball of fire getting closer and closer. Things certainly look dire, especially when Marine asks John if they've got a chance. He answers, We haven't given up yet, dear. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that wasn't very comforting. But at least the ladies are all wearing their heavy velour housecoats for protection, Kurt. Yeah, really. They may want to put on their thick parkas for an extra layer of protection just to play it safe. (laughs) Well, things are certainly heating up for our castaways, but I guess we'll have to wait until after this word from our sponsor to find out if the Robinsons remembered to pack sunscreen on their journey to Alpha Centauri. Lost in Space has been brought to you by... This non-profit podcast is made possible with support from... Monster Wax Trading Cards, makers of science fiction and horror monster cards since 1992. Check out their newest series, Lost in Space, The Art of Ron Gross. It's a dramatic retrospective of the classic TV show in an incredible photorealistic style. Check them out at monsterwax.com. That's monster, W-A-X, dot com. And also through the generous support of listeners via Patreon, where fans fuel their favorite shows. If you'd like to help, just visit patreon.com and search Alpha Control. When we return from the break to start what might be the closing act for our castaways... The Jupiter 2's main viewport is filled by the sight of the blazing hot sun. Major West warns, We've got to pull out now or it'll be too late! As the professor and Don work furiously to save the day, the camera cuts away to the rest of the family, who are shielding their eyes from the intense glare. Miraculously, at the last possible moment, the professor's space-time solution saves our space family from death by sunburn. and the Jupiter 2 pulls away from danger. That was close, and everyone's relieved, especially Dr. Smith. I knew it all the time. (laughs) I don't know what the space-time solution was. Maybe they called it that because it saved a lot of time not having to explain what the solution actually was. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Whatever. (laughs) It works. Later, as the Jupiter 2 streaks through the star-filled cosmos, the family is seated in the galley, enjoying a celebratory meal. John gets everyone's attention, announcing they have just enough fuel left for one last course change without endangering their landing. So now that they're safely past the sun, and since it's closer than Alpha Centauri, the Professor and Major West have decided to head for Earth. Everyone's thrilled at the prospect of no longer being lost in space, especially Dr. Smith, who leaps to his feet. Oh, Earth, Earth, Mother Earth, home and hearth. Oh, crepe Suzette, pheasant under glass, I've done it. (laughs) Unable to wait, Smith asks when the joyous occasion of their landing will take place. And Major West says they'll only have one chance, but provided they make that last critical course change at precisely three minutes past midnight... They'll be touching down on Earth the following afternoon. Oh, joy. Oh, bliss. Oh, crepe Suzette. (laughs) 
Smith is complaining about the food when he should feel lucky just to be alive. But at least they agree to go to Earth, although the moment they say they only have one chance to make that course correction later that night, I heard all sorts of alarms going off, going, warning, warning, don't tell Smith. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of obvious foreshadowing. Yeah. Yep. Later that night, we cut to the star-filled vistas through the lower viewport. Suddenly drifting just outside the glass, that floating fairy appears again. Calling for Dr. Smith to come away with her. Tucked away in his cabin, wearing a nightcap and gown, Smith's fast asleep. But slowly, the green beauty's lilting tones stir him from his slumber. Then weirdly, as he sits up in his bunk, he appears to be in some kind of a trance. Oh, is that what it was? A trance? I thought it was some sort of liquid dream. He literally pops up in bed and says, I'm coming. I, I'm really glad you explained that because I was about to complain to the FCC. <laughs> Here we go, folks. Uh, I didn't say it. Talk to Irwin. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, sure enough, as Dr. Smith emerges from his cabin, he sings back in an enchanted voice that it is his destiny to join her in space. What was funny, though, was that the robot is standing guard right outside Smith's door. And even though no one else wakes up, well, except for Debbie, who goes right back to sleep... The robot hears all this and just lets Smith walk out of the room. Yeah, that's right. Debbie slides open the door to her cabin, or I should say her closet, because that's all it is. It's a tiny broom closet. (laughs) There's no bed. There's no blanket. There's not even a cushion for her to lay down or even newspapers for her to poop on. And if that's not cruel enough, she yawns and shows off her latest dental work with a big toothless grin. All the front teeth are missing, but at least the scabs are (laughs) So I guess we know what Debbie was doing during season one hiatus, recuperating from her run-in with a hungry pair of pliers. Somebody please call the SPCA. Mm, Poor little Debbie. Yeah, it was. It was sad. I felt sorry for her. I did too. She's so cute. (laughs) Well, I was wondering, you know, how is she going to smile now with her teeth missing? Well, we just saw it. They just pretend they're there. The evidence is plain for all to see, (laughs) sir. Again, though, they never put the disclaimer. No animals were hurt in the making. <laughs> At least they were honest about that. The omission says it all. Indeed. Well, later, back on the upper level, John and the Major are seated in the flight deck with only 18 minutes to go before they perform that last critical course correction for Earth. Oh, man, this is another one of those, gee, we know some space jargon, but not what it means moments, you know? Major West (laughs) declares, we should be able to see Earth now. We're passing by Uranus and Arcturus. Arcturus is a star. It's nowhere near Uranus. It's over 36 light years away from our solar system. If you're passing Uranus and you see a star, that star is going to be our sun. It's only two and a half light hours away. You can't miss it. But they can't say that. Why? 
because they've already passed our sun just two scenes earlier. That puts them in the center of our solar system, not outside of it. Doesn't anyone here even have a poster of the planets on the wall around there? If you fly over the sun and you pass any other planets before reaching Earth, it's going to be Mercury and or Venus, and that's it. But hey, Uranus and Arcturus, that sounds cooler, so let's run with it. Oh, that is so funny. But you make a great point. They actually have that National Geographic fold-out poster of the solar system you had when you were a kid. They have it in Will's room, but they don't look at it. (laughs) They have one on the wall of the (laughs) shop. You just passed the sun. It almost killed you. How can you forget? You're already in the center of the solar system. You're not outside of it. That just doesn't make any sense at all. That's crazy. Gee, you know, I've got this poster right here. It kind of looks like we're on the wrong end here. Really? (laughs) Uh. Well, wherever they are, just then, they're suddenly confronted by a bizarre sight. The green girl, just as Dr. Smith described her, drifting outside the main viewport. At first, the men don't believe their eyes, but they can't both be crazy. At this point, Kurt, it was pretty obvious to me that the robot has never confirmed Dr. Smith's story about the green siren to the others. And we know that B-9 often maintains a golden silence, but you'd think Smith, desperate to prove he wasn't suffering from space rapture, would have already ordered the robot to tell everyone else that the green girl was real. What gives here, Kurt? Uh, Well, I suspect all the logic of this episode was jettisoned early on, (laughs) along with the Detronium fuel canister. (laughs) That's the only explanation that makes sense to me. I'll just stop asking questions. (laughs) From now on, every time I see that scene, I'll just say, there goes the logic, there it goes, floating out into space. A green lady in space is concerning enough, but things get even weirder when despite batophobia and a hot condition, they spot a wide-eyed Dr. Smith wearing a spacesuit, floating away from the ship in pursuit of his peculiar pixie. Oh dear. Okay, you're going to shut me down, but I'm going to just ask it. Since the men are sitting right there by the airlock, how could they possibly have managed to miss Smith suiting up and leaving the ship without them noticing. (laughs) I don't get it. Yeah, you would think that would be kind of obvious. Although, thinking is the one thing we're apparently not supposed to do in this episode. But that being said, Smith could have used the yet-to-be-revealed airlock from the space pod. Uh, That's the space shuttle that's been sitting in mothballs all during season one and two and will suddenly stumble across it accidentally in season three. So let's be generous and assume Smith found that exit and escaped through that. Mm. Well, that's pretty weird, but even harder to explain is the fact that famous claustrophobic Jonathan Harris is actually wearing a space helmet. It does look like the stuntman was being used in the long shots, but in the close-ups, it's definitely Harris. Hmm. Well, according to Cushman's book on the series, Don Richardson was only able to convince Harris to wear the helmet by cutting off the back side of it. 
And actually, I think, although someone out there will probably check me on this, this is the only time in the entire series I can remember seeing Dr. Smith doing a spacewalk. You know, director Don Richardson seemed to suggest in the Lost in Space Forever book that Jonathan's claustrophobia may have been selectively enforced, much like Dr. Smith's Mm. delicate back. (laughs) He recalled an earlier series that he directed where Harris was buried in 10 feet of coins and didn't seem to mind it at all. But in Lost in Space, where he's the star, he suddenly has claustrophobia. Now, I don't know what the real answer is, but I did get a chuckle of how the helmet was fogged up for all the long shots of the stuntman, you know, floating around. Mm -hmm. But suddenly the fog lifts for all the close-ups of Jonathan's face. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> that would be very Harris-like, wouldn't it, if the claustrophobia was another... Yeah. <laughs> stop, stop, I'm not going to do it. You can call Erwin. <laughs> well, as Major West says, I see it, but I don't believe it. It's a fantastic sight to be sure, and I guess John doesn't want the kids to miss out because he summons the rest of the family topside where they can see for themselves that the girl is real, and she's really green, just like Dr. Smith said. You know, I can't figure out the logic of that clear visor. She can't use it to dim the sun. It's crystal clear. She can't use it for protection against the rain or the wind because she's in the vacuum of space, and it's cut in half, so it can't be used to hold in any air either. Mm -hmm. But I do appreciate that she doesn't really speak English. You know, she just kind of uses that name and the intonations that you're talking about, although she does say that, come away with me, earlier on. That's the only part. I I can't explain that (laughs) salad bowl hat either, but it it looks kind of cool, so. Yeah. Well, as the family races upstairs to join the party, nitpickers might notice as B-9 exits the electronic elevator, you'll glimpse Bob May's feet sticking out from the bottom of the Bermuda shorts as he shuffles around the edge of the astrogator. Oh, I missed that entirely, but my eyes were probably too busy rolling from all the other absurdities. Well, suddenly it all makes sense. The blips on the radar, the strange figure by the fuel barge that Don saw, and Smith's wild story. What doesn't make sense is what could have caused Smith to suddenly change his mind and follow the green beauty out into space. Filling in the blanks, the robot reports he's had time to analyze the green gal, computing that she and her people from the green mist feed on deuteronium. Hmm... It turns out that she's followed the Jupiter 2 through space and hypnotized Smith so that she can eat their fuel supply. Ah, now we know why there was fuel missing from the space barge. But it did make me wonder, could the green girl possibly be a hybrid humanoid crossbred with the monster plants? I mean, she is green. And remember... The plants ate deuteronium as well. Ah, well, you know, that explanation is pretty clever, but it's probably too clever by half. After all, wasn't there still fuel left in the barge? And why would and how could she follow the ship going near light speed and leaving all her people behind? But, you know, I guess it's best not to think about these things and just accept it, right? I guess so. (laughs) Throw the dog a bone. Yeah, in this instance, you know, we'll we'll go with the plant theory. It'll grow on you. Yeah. Eh. (laughs) <laughs> uh, 
Well, that's all well and good, but with time running out before the needed course change, the Lime Lassie has lured Dr. Smith so far away from the Jupiter 2 that he can't be reached by a rocket line. The only way to rescue him is to alter the ship's course and get closer to Smith. But if they do that, John explains, they won't have enough fuel remaining for a second course change, which will cause them to miss Earth entirely, shooting right out the other side of the galaxy. With the episode nearing a conclusion, a moment of truth has arrived. Either dump Smith and earn a trip home for the rest of the castaways, or save Smith and everyone's hopelessly lost in space. Again. (laughs) That's right. If you miss your exit, you have to stay on the highway forever until the road ends because you don't have enough fuel to turn around. And once again, we're suddenly on the edge of the galaxy. And once you fall off the edge, you're lost in space again, right? They can't seem to remember the stars that they just passed to get a fix or just keep going to the next star, Alpha Centauri. It's all or nothing, apparently, folks. But hey... Yes, you have to have these (laughs) do-or-die dilemmas at every stage of this episode. Yeah. Well, it's a difficult Sophie's choice for our space pioneers. All except for Don, who argues that Smith's caused them nothing but trouble from the beginning. Why should they sacrifice everything just for him? I say we go to Earth. Let him stay out there. But the ladies seem to be leaning towards saving Dr. Smith. I don't know, Kurt. I'm on Team West on this one. I've lost count how many times Smith's nearly killed the Robinsons in this episode alone, not to mention the other 30 episodes. Oh, man, you are preaching to the choir. And since you lost count, allow me to refresh your memory. He nearly killed them all five times this episode alone. A new record. The only reason I can imagine the ladies are pulling his fat from the fire is that maybe on some subconscious level, the ladies feel jealous to see him out there gallivanting around with that green tart. They may not want Smith for themselves, but that doesn't mean they want some other woman to get him. No siree. Jealousy can be funny that way. I mean, that's the best I can come up with. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. Mm. Well, there's no time for John to let the computer make the decision this time. So once again, Mrs. Robinson puts her foot down and makes the call. Despite all his faults, Smith's still a human being. Hmm. And they have to try to save him. Hearing that causes Don to punch the astrogator in frustration. But giving in to the inevitable, he selflessly volunteers to suit up once more and haul Dr. Smith safely back inside the ship. I say Guy Williams deserves an Oscar for the facial expression he gives when Marine insists they save Smith. He was clearly channeling an expression of exasperation that all husbands throughout the universe have experienced at one time or another. I call it the, yes, dearest, look of surrender. (laughs) (laughs) He did look pretty defeated. He almost had to turn his eyes away from Don and shame as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, after John makes the emergency course change, Don manages to bring Dr. Smith, dazed but unharmed, safely back aboard the ship. Strangely, as soon as he steps through the airlock, Smith falls completely unconscious and collapses to the floor. I say strangely, but maybe Smith's hypoxic, 
because when they enter the ship dressed in their Reynolds Wrap spacesuits, they're not only not wearing their helmets, they're not even carrying them. So apparently, they must have left them outside. Oh, that is weird. But, you know, they might have tossed Smith's helmet because it had that giant hole in the back of it. (laughs) But it still doesn't explain where Don's is. Nope, it doesn't. With some effort, Will manages to wake Smith. He's confused and totally unaware of what has transpired since falling under the spell of the space Lorelei. Hearing that Major West hauled him in causes Smith to offer a weak thank you, followed quickly by a boast. I've always heard that only superior intellects are subject to hypnotic influences. (laughs) I guess I should acknowledge that Smith isn't really to blame for this last incident, since he was apparently hypnotized, but that doesn't excuse him for the other four incidents, so you could execute him for those four times and pardon him for the fifth crime if you want, but still, I mean, unforgivable. (laughs) Yep. Just then, a weak signal comes crackling over the receiver, which causes everyone to forget all about the green space lady. Alpha control to unidentified space vehicle. Do you read us? Over. After Don boosts the ship's transmission signal, the professor is able to make contact. Alpha control, this is Jupiter 2. Do you read me? This is Alpha control. Your signal is very faint. Your identification sounded like the Jupiter 2. Please reconfirm. Yeah, the Jupiter 2, you idiot. Help us. The Jupiter 2 was lost in space over a year ago. But we've come back. We're pioneers. Heroes. Save us. John shuts Smith up, takes the mic back, and reports their dire state, then asks Alpha Control if they can track the Jupiter 2. Only with a radio telescope. Can you try telemetry? You are beyond the range of our telemetry. You seem to be passing Earth, departing this galaxy. Can you change heading? Negative, Alpha Control. Rocket fuel unavailable. We are losing your signal. You are exiting the galaxy, headed for outer space. Good luck. No, no, come back. But it's no use. The professor confirms they can't get back to Earth. I have to say, it was very satisfying to hear Alpha Control acknowledge they were still alive. But you know, if you listen to that conversation they just had on the radio, there still is some uncertainty. Alpha Control asked John to confirm if they are the Jupiter 2, but John never does it. He talks about auxiliary power, telemetry, rocket fuel, and la-di-da-di-da. Smith yells into the mic, but we don't even know if John was holding the button down. He snatches it back from Smith, and for a while there, I thought for sure he was going to break the cord. But instead, they fade out, so the best we could do is hope. Of course, it made no sense that they were suddenly on the edge of the galaxy again, and if they were that far out, how they could hear the radio response so quickly... (laughs) Instead of requiring the millions of years delay it would normally require for a transmission to go back and forth. Now, Star Trek, they glossed over all that problem with their subspace radio theory that allows faster-than-light transmissions. So maybe we could just assume that's what's going on here as well. But still, I felt awfully good at least hearing that conversation. I can't explain why it had such an effect on me, but it's sort of like, thank God we at least got that. Yeah, that was a little concession, wasn't it? But yeah, it makes so sense. They're constantly going in and out of the galaxy, and yet when they're on pre-planets, they can't ever make contact <laughs> with Alpha Control. Yeah, you got the same transmission. You're on the edge of the galaxy, dudes. I mean, if that can reach it that far out, it should be able to do pre-planets. After all, where's pre-planets? Was pre-planets in the galaxy or not? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess they took the scenic route to get home. We're going to go outside the galaxy, and then we're going to come back in the galaxy. But we can't work our way around the sun. Nope, nope, can't do that. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) 
Well, everyone's disappointed, especially Dr. Smith, who slumps down on a stool, moaning, Oh dear, no crepe, Suzette. No pheasant under glass. Will places a consoling hand on the downcast doctor's shoulder and tries to raise his spirits. Never mind, Dr. Smith. We'll be okay. And anyway, we're on an adventure now. And that's better than Crepe Suzette any day. The camera tracks in on Smith's dour face as he weakly responds, Oh, the pain. Well, Will rejoins his parents by the flight deck and asks John soberly where they're going now. The Robinsons turn away from us to stare out the viewport at a vast sea of stars and constellations as Dad answers, We'll know when we get there, son. We'll know when we get there. Well, this wild adventure ends as the camera dissolves to a shot of the lonely Jupiter 2 gliding away and still very much lost in space. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on Wild Adventure. Well, it did have all sorts of problems, to be sure. In fact, it had so many problems, it got to be fun after a while noticing them all. At least, that's how I felt. It's almost like a an Ed Wood movie. You know, the dialogue is so serious, awkward, and scientifically inaccurate that mm. you start to relish the absurdity of it all. And I found myself enjoying this episode, even though I felt a little bit guilty for doing so. Smith really pushed my buttons this time. I still like him as a person, but not as a crewmate. Five attempts on my life during one adventure is just too much. Let the girl from the Green Mist take him and get rid of him. There were so many good sci-fi shots though in this episode, though that was pretty cool. The the fuel dumping scene, the fuel refilling scene, the floating girl scenes, those were all pretty cool. Yep. So even though it was very frustrating on one level, I still found it very entertaining. And it also seems more satisfying because it follows a less stellar episode, Blast Off into Space, instead of something so, you know, acclaimed, like Follow the Leader and Impossible to Measure Up Against. So let, let me give a little backhanded compliment to the scientific inaccuracies that I criticized in this episode. Was the science ridiculous? Yes. Could they have changed just a few words and made it much more palatable? Absolutely. But let's not forget that the main reason I know or care about anything related to astronomy or space travel is because of childhood TV shows like Star Trek, Outer Limits, and most of all, Lost in Space. Mm. Those programs really fired up my interest in all things space-related. Not enough to get a better job or a better paycheck, mind you, but enough to sit back and nitpick the very programs that introduced me to a lifetime interest in science and science fiction. And I bet the same holds true to millions of other viewers. So in many ways... Lost in Space is a victim of its own success. It may not have known much about science, but it sure made it exciting. And now it has to put up with criticism from grown-up children it helped raise and educate about (laughs) outer space. So thanks, Erwin Allen. We salute your service to science. We'll still make fun of you behind your back, but in a living way. (laughs) The same way kids make fun of their parents even after they're dead and buried. We appreciate all you did for us, although we may have a rather perverse way of showing that love. So with that... We now return you to your regularly scheduled sarcasm. <laughs> what, what did you think about it? 
Oh, I liked it a lot. And of course, all the plot holes and scientific inaccuracies were hard to miss. But like you said, after a while, you started relishing them and waiting for the next Whopper to come along. (laughs) It gets to be like Smith, you know, he just, he keeps doing it. It almost becomes like a running gag. Yeah, yeah. But it's fun. And that's kind of the litmus test I have to go with right now for this season is, did I enjoy it? And yes, I did enjoy it. You know, one of the main plot holes, though, was the green lady just disappears and it's like, oh, gone and forgotten. No mention of that again. But take heart, dear friends. We will get to see this green lady yet again in season two. So yeah, I liked it. Ah, well, you got to hand Irwin Allen this. His continuity may not be very good, but he does have great continuity when it comes to having terrible continuity. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah. I also like the way that John, Maureen, and Will turn their backs to the camera to look out the viewport. And the way the camera moves over their shoulders to focus on the great Starfield galaxy before them. You know, the galaxy that they're supposedly (laughs) on the edge of leaving. However, that shot is kind of spoiled because as the camera moves in towards the stars, you can see the stars getting bigger because it's just a poster on the other side of the glass. (laughs) They don't keep their size the way real stars do when you move closer to them. This is just one of those little problems that you don't realize, you know, when you're doing a storyboard for your shots and then you actually film it and you go, oh, wait a minute, that's not working. Oops, I didn't think about that problem. But the music for this scene is so good that it makes up for it. It's some of the best music in the episode. In fact, I wonder if it's from season one because it's that good. Do you know? Uh, No, this is uh, more Alexander Courage music. Yeah, it is a nice nice way to end the episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it must have been really hard for Don Richardson to get Guy to turn is back to the camera that <laughs> oh yeah yeah the the only way they could have kept those stars in perspective would be at, for every foot that they moved the camera forward they could have had someone the, move the poster backwards but that would have been very very complicated mm-hmm. <laughs> or they could have done it with animation you know they could have just matted it in but that would have cost more money, money. <laughs> <laughs> that's right well i do like sometimes they'll have the uh, poster of the star fields you know the backdrop whatever it is you'll kind of see it swaying a little bit left and right. Uh-huh. So I think someone's <laughs> off stage pushing it back and forth. Well, I also get a real charge out of the fact that, you know, they can't find a familiar star, but they're always looking at the Crab Nebula. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the most distinctive thing in the whole universe is right there in front of, gee, I don't, where are we? <laughs> We're at the edge of the galaxy. We must be. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Well, before we finish, let's talk about the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. Sometime later, we're upstairs by the flight deck. Dr. Smith is drowning his sorrows as he listens to the robot singing a heartfelt version of Santa Lucia, accompanied by Will on the guitar. Soft winds are blowing. Well, a sudden end to the robot's crooning brings Smith back to reality with a thud. You bubble-headed booby! Don't you realize what you've done? I was on the point of landing on the Isle of Capri. Now I'll never get there. Boy, I don't know who they used to sing that song, but it clearly was not Dick Tufeld. It didn't sound anything like him at all. (laughs) Oh, you picked up on that, did you? Well, Well, yeah, it's kind of glaring. (laughs) How can you miss it? Well, I'll save the answer to that mystery until we talk about the next episode. That'll keep the kids tuning in for the next one. Oh, so it's somebody famous, is it? 
I'll just keep that our little secret. That's right. <laughs> okay. But suddenly, a signal on the scanner brings a warning of an unfamiliar spatial body dead ahead. Just then, a silky female voice over the communicator requests the Jupiter 2 change course and prepare to enter her planet's atmosphere. It's a confusing development to everyone but Smith, who's convinced they've been traveling in circles, and the sultry-sounding radio's space controller is from home. Without asking permission, Dr. Smith alters the ship's course again, directly towards the unidentified planet that he's convinced is Earth. But within moments, the robot begins to wave his accordion arms excitedly, warning of danger, danger approaching. That's because Dr. Smith placed our hapless castaways on a collision course with a deadly high-intensity radiation belt surrounding the planet. Oh dear, what next? But before we can find out, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Wow, Kurt, Irwin must have really struck a good sponsorship deal with the man from GLAAD, because that approaching radiation belt looks suspiciously like a jumbo sheet of glad wrap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a cool effect. Those blue strands of radiation blowing in the space breeze behind the robot in the viewport. <laughs> Who knew invisible radiation could be so colorful and atmospheric? It was pretty neat. It was. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 32 of Lost in Space titled The Ghost Planet. Ooh, sounds scary, kids. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via Libsyn.com, that's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com, or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.